Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is by Jason Gay. Why did the umpire quit Little League? Nasty parents. Edward Ring has an article, Why California insists on wasting its scarce water supply. Then we will do Chat GPT Doctors Will See You Now by Nini Surbaram. Then Susan Pinker wrote an article, The Power of a Good Neighborhood. And then Haley Nayada's Motherhood is Better Than Advertised. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Why Did the Umpire Quit Little League? Nasty Parents. Enough, Don Rizzuto thought. Two respected umpires had quit his local Little League program in Deptford Township, New Jersey, citing verbal abuse from parents and spectators. Buzzfunny, the league president with 40 years as a youth baseball volunteer, blasted out a Facebook missive. Effective immediately, in the event of unruly or abusive behavior by a spectator or game attendee that is deemed necessary to impose the code of conduct, that offender will be barred from further attendance at Deptford Township Little Leagues until he or she agrees to and completes three umpiring assignments at our complex. Shorter version, act like a jerk to one of our Little League umpires and you're going to have to become a Little League umpire. For three games, then we'll let you back to watch. Since the policy was announced in April, Deptford Township hasn't witnessed any new meltdowns. If anything, Bafuzzi's idea has struck a nerve. This is our chance to make a difference, he told me. People are tired of it. He's right. What pushed Deptford Township to the edge is hardly unusual. Around the country, youth and school programs continue to lose umpires, referees, and officials at worrisome rates. The pandemic was a factor. With sports shut down or limited, some former officials found new work. But the number one reason for leaving remains the same ugly antisocial behavior by spectators, by parents in particular. The attrition rate is incredible, said Barry Mano, the founder and president of the National Association of Sports Officials, an organization based in Racine, Wisconsin. People say, I want to give this a try. I like sports. I can make some money. Then they come into the whirlwind, which is largely made up of bad behavior, certainly at the youth level, by parents slash fans. Then they say, what the hell? Why am I going to hang around and do this? And they leave. The shortage is driven directly by how they're treated. To be clear, we're not talking about a brief, spirited boo from the bleachers or a smart-alecky request for the ref to pay a visit to the eye doctor. Today's climate is more menacing. Across youth sports, 
It isn't hard to find examples of parents, spectators, coaches, and other adults confronting and threatening officials during and after games. Every week we get a report of some type of physical assault against the sports officials, said Mano. It's mind-boggling. I'll say it for you. This is a societal embarrassment, another pathetic symptom of our national tantrum culture. Nearly everyone who plays youth sports has a memory of parents gone wild, but the current situation is a disaster. Mano said that a National Association of Sports Officials survey found that of every 100 officials who sign on to officiate, only 30 are left by the third year. A variety of factors are at play. One is the increased intensity in youth sports, brought on by the influx of pay-for-play travel and club teams. Such programs can wreak havoc on more casual, inclusive, recreational sports programs, lower stress leagues where it's still okay to forget your cleats and daydream in right field, and instead supercharge contests featuring children still finger-painting in elementary school. Parents who pay more may expect more and see youth sports as a portal to potential scholarship opportunities. It has ratcheted up the stakes and, by extension, put unacceptable pressure on officials. Because of the money being invested, the time being invested, those parents slash fans rush to bad behavior more than they might in a community setting, Mano said. This is the heightened environment Don Bufuzzi was trying to navigate in Deptford Township. I've had people come up to me and say, you wouldn't believe that call. The umpire stinks. I got it right here on my phone. Look, he said. I say, I don't want to see it. Bufuzzi said that 99%, 99% of sports parents in his community are wonderful and have the right priorities about Little League. He says his bad fans, must umpire idea, is meant to be an aggressive deterrent, which he hopes to never have to initiate. Everyone is looking for answers. My son's fourth slash fifth grade basketball league has a seatbelt rule for when coaches get out of line. They have to sit on the bench and stay there. Mano talked about silent Saturdays in which adult noise is prohibited, children play, and quiet civility reigns. Sounds great, actually. We could use silent Saturdays in a lot of places. And now the article by Edward Ring, Why California Insists on Wasting Its Scarce Water Supply. With the nation's two largest reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, drawn down to historic lows, the seven states that use water from the Colorado River have failed to agree on how to adapt to its dwindling flow. The impasse puts California against everyone else. If California's political leaders had the political will, they could solve the problem for every member of the Colorado River Compact by developing infrastructure to use untapped sources of water. But to do that, the state legislature would have to stand up to a powerful environmentalist lobby that views humans as parasites and demands rationing as the only acceptable policy. 
Unlike anywhere else in the American Southwest, California can rely on so-called atmospheric rivers that saturate the state with enough rain to supply the state's farms and cities with adequate water. Even in drought years, these storms blow in from the Pacific, hit the ramparts of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and dump tens of millions of acre-feet of runoff into the streams and rivers. Californians can and must agree on new infrastructure solutions that will safely harvest more of this water for human consumption. The Colorado crisis underscores California's grotesque failure to upgrade its water infrastructure for the 21st century. Since 1980, Californians have endured five droughts and politicians are predicting worse in the future. With groundwater aquifers dangerously depleted and access to Colorado River water imperiled, rationing won't be enough. It isn't as if water abundance isn't possible in California. The state's 2021-22 water season recorded some of the lowest total precipitation ever. But in a single month, December 2021, well over 100 million acre-feet of rain fell during the one big storm that hit the state that year. If California had the capacity to capture more of that water, it would have been enough to f- supply full allocations to Golden State farmers and avoid rationing in cities. As it is, during this current water season, one of the wettest on record, politicians continue to warn Californians that the drought isn't over. There are two major projects that could unlock millions of acre-feet of new water for Californians. The first is to eliminate nutrient pollution in the San Francisco Bay, which feeds toxic algae blooms that kill aquatic life. The solution so far has been to dilute the nutrient loads in the bay by requiring massive diversions from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, a little like flushing a toilet but upgrading the urban wastewater treatment facilities surrounding the bay would eliminate nutrient pollution, permitting more delta water to be directed to California farms and cities. A lot more water. This rainy season started in October 2022. By the first day of spring, March 21, the net outflow after pumping from the delta into the bay was 11.6 million acre-feet, but the state had only pumped 1 million acre-feet into the California aqueduct, and the Federal Bureau of Reclamation had pumped only 826,000 acre-feet into the Delta-Mendota Canal. Despite record precipitation, the state had diverted only 13% of flood-level delta outflows into southbound aqueducts. In late March and early April, as rain continued to pour in California and the biggest snowpack in decades began to melt, California's water officials actually reduced pumping. pumping. Their reason? To protect endangered fish and maintain sufficient flow to flush out the nutrient pollution in the San Francisco Bay. Even in a year with extraordinary rain and snow, California's environmental extremists have done their utmost to prevent water managers from filling reservoirs, 
allow pumps to operate at capacity to fill the southbound aqueducts, and allow farmers to get their full water allocations so they can use runoff to irrigate instead of pumping already depleted groundwater. But even if California's state government weren't dominated by extremists, California's water infrastructure would still be stretched to the limit. The second major project, then, would be for Californians to build new ways to extract and store water from the delta during atmospheric river events. A new technique, already demonstrated on the Tulumay River, creates channels in some of the delta islands so that huge perforated pipes can be installed under a gravel bed. Fish are not endangered by such installations. The water could be rapidly transferred to aquifers south of the delta via, via surface percolation and deep injection. Unused aquifer capacity in the San Joaquin Valley is conservatively estimated at more than 50 million acre-feet. If Californians were willing to harvest additional millions of acre-feet from storm runoff in the Sacramento-San Joaquin watershed and had the means to do so, they might not need any water from the, California, from the Colorado River. This is how California can give back not only its share of Colorado River water, but cover its annual deficit of 2 million to 4 million acre-feet. Other states in the Colorado Basin might help fund these projects. Thinking big solves big problems. It's time for California's state legislature permanently to solve the challenge of water scarcity in the American Southwest. And now, chat GBT doctors will see you now. Behind every physician's medical advice is a wealth of knowledge, but soon patients across the country might get advice from a different source, artificial intelligence. In California, Wisconsin, OpenAI's GPT, Generative Artificial Intelligence, is reading patient messages and drafting responses from their doctors. The operation is part of a pilot program in which three health systems test if the AI will cut the time that medical staff spend replying to patients' ongoing inquiries. University of California San Diego Health and UW Health began testing the tool in April. Stanford Healthcare aims to join the rollout very soon. Altogether, about two dozen healthcare staff are piloting this tool. Marlene Millen, a primary care physician at UC San Diego Health, who is helping lead the AI test, has been testing GPT in her inbox. Early AI-generated responses needed heavy editing, she said, and her team has been working to improve the responses. They are also adding a kind of bedside manner. If a patient mentioned re returning from a trip, the draft could include a line that asked if their travels went well. It gives the human touch that we would, Dr. Millen said. There is preliminary data that suggests AI could add value. ChatGPT scored better than real doctors at responding to patients' queries posted online. 
according to a study recently published in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine, in which a panel of doctors did blind evaluations of posts. As many industries test ChatGPT as a business tool, hospital administrators and doctors are hopeful that the artificial intelligence assist will ease burnout among their staff, a problem that skyrocketed during the pandemic. The crush of messages and health records management is a contributor, according to the American Medical Association. Epic, the company that built the MyChart tool through which patients can message their healthcare providers, saw logins more than double from 106 million in the first quarter of 2020 to 260 million in the first quarter of 2023. Earlier this month, Epic and Microsoft announced that health systems would have access to OpenEyes GPT through Epic's software and Microsoft's Azure Cloud service. Microsoft has invested in OpenAI and is building artificial intelligence tools into its products. Hospitals are piloting GPT-3, a version of the large language model that is powering ChatGPT. ChatGPT has mystified computer scientists for its skill in responding to medical questions, though it is known to make things up, including its ability to pass the United States medical licensing exam. OpenAI's language models haven't been specifically trained on medical data sets, according to Eric Boyd, Microsoft's corporate vice president of AI platform though medical studies and medical information were included in the vast data set that taught it to spot patterns. Doctors working with ChatGPT may be the best messenger, said Dr. John Ayers, a computational epidemiologist at the University of California, San Diego, and an author of the JAMA study. The AI pilot has some healthcare staff buzzing, said Dr. Millen. Doctors are so burnt out that they are looking for any kind of hope. That hospital system saw patient messages jump from 50,000 messages a month before the pandemic to over 80,000 a month after, with more than 140,000 messages in some pandemic months, Dr. Millen said. Now when Dr. Millen clicks on a message from a patient, the AI instantly displays a draft reply. In doing so, the AI consults information in the patient's message, as well as an abbreviated version of their electronic medical history, said Seth Hain, Senior Vice President of Research and Development at Epic. Medical data is protected in compliance with federal laws requiring patient privacy, he added. There is an option to start with the draft, and edit or send the message as is, if it is correct, or start with a blank reply. It is helping us get it started, she said. For now, the San Diego team has stopped the AI from answering any query that seeks medical advice. Similarly, in Wisconsin, the 10 doctors at UW Health have enabled AI responses to a limited set of patient questions. Uh, including prescription requests, according to Chero Gazwami, Chief Information Officer at UW Health. 
Administrators and doctors say the tool could be transformative, but only if it works. If the drafts require too much fact-checking or modification or demand too much time, then doctors will lose trust in it, said Patricia Garcia, a gastroenterologist at Stanford HealthCare. According to one team of doctors, the version of ChatGPT used in the JAMA study is significantly better than physicians at answering medical questions posted online. For the study, the doctors scoured the Reddit forum r slash askdocs for questions and the responses from doctors that were posted last October. They then posed the medical question to ChatGPT and logged the AI's response. Christopher Longhurst, Chief Digital Officer and Chief Medical Officer at UC San Diego Health, said the data persuaded him to give the AI pilot a try. There is now research showing that this is going to help. Well, let's see if we can translate this into practice, he said. And now Susan Pinker, The Power of a Good Neighborhood. Sociologists have long known that growing up surrounded by poverty is corrosive for a child's life chances. The 2020 book, The Origins of You, How Childhood Shapes Later Life, written by a team of four developmental psychologists, showed that children who grow up in disadvantaged neighborhoods are more likely to remain antisocial and badly behave when they get older, while their peers in better neighborhoods mature and stop acting out. This is especially true of boys. Similarly, the Harvard economist Raj Chetty has shown that the zip code a person grows up in helps to predict the likelihood that they will drop out of school, get pregnant as a teenager, or be incarcerated. Now a new study from the Netherlands has found that a key factor in a child's ultimate level of education, even more important than their own family's economic situation, is whether they grow up with affluent neighbors nearby. Researcher Agatha Troost and her colleagues at Delft University of Technology used the national database to track the address of every Dutch baby born in 1995, a total of 140,338 people, from birth to age 23. Using geolocating software, they drew up a socioeconomic profile for each child's immediate neighborhood, calculating the percentage of neighbors who were affluent, middle class, or disadvantaged. After controlling for a number of other factors, including parents' earnings and levels of education, the researchers found that a child's own experience of wealth or poverty mattered less to their ultimate level of schooling than exposure to well-off neighbors. The data suggests that growing up in an affluent area with well-maintained parks, libraries, and soccer fields, as well as interactions with educated neighbors, could boost a poor child's ability to see beyond her immediate horizon. Affluent families create neighborhoods and activities that create opportunities, said Ms. Troost, and these advantages are shared with other children who happen to live nearby. The finding echoes an earlier study by Mr. Chetty and colleagues, which showed that having even one inspiring teacher in middle school can enhance a student's career prospects. Whether in a classroom or on the street, 
it seems that social interactions outside the family can kickstart a young person's motivation and ambition. At the same time, the study also underscored the importance of the home environment. When parents are well educated, children are likely to be too. Whether the family lives in a depressed, about to be gentrified corner of a city or in an isolated rural town, the parent's education acts as a protective halo. And that's the moral of the story. Neighborhoods can have different effects on different children depending on how educated their parents are, whether they are male or female, and how much casual contact they have with people who are different from their own families. Location, location, location may be a real estate cliche, but we're learning that it also holds true for children's development. And now let's do Haley Nada's Motherhood is Better Than Advertise. In the deluge of advertising before Mother's Day, companies offer a defeated image of motherhood, even as they claim to want to help their customers celebrate moms. The American mother is apparently a disheveled, stressed-out woman looking for a glass of wine. Most gift guides focus on pampering, coupons for spa days, manicures, and pedicures. The underlying message is that all mothers want is a break from their children. I recently passed a store that was advertising a sale on wine tubblers. The sign in the window said, Moms Only. The term mom is often charged with negativity. Phrases like mom body or mom brain, being unable to remember obvious or basic details, suggest damage. Given the connotations, I've even wondered if I could avoid using the term mom and opt for the more neutral parent when referring to myself. But then what would my kids call me? My husband and I aren't what you might call kid people. I worried about what effect motherhood would have on me. I didn't want to become the type of woman I saw in those gift guides, but maybe I didn't have a choice. The image of motherhood was everywhere. Now that I am on the other side of things, that image seems silly. After we put our boys to bed, my husband and I jokingly chant, wake them up, wake them up. We want more of our kids, not less. We watch videos of them replaying the day. Sometimes, especially on days when they cross a small milestone, we open the camera rolls on our phones and scroll back to the day they were born reminding ourselves of how far they've come. I think we are better for becoming parents. Through a cycle of struggle and delight, we are being refined. Yet the ads make women seem like victims of motherhood. Children naturally think their mothers are always dreaming of getting away from them. This doesn't match the reality I see around me, and it's certainly not how I want people to think of me. My children didn't ruin my life. The mothers that I know are proud of being moms. Motherhood has elevated and dignified them. The exhausted woman wishing for a life before children is a tired trope. It is time to retire phrases that demean motherhood and do our best to ignore the lazy ad copy used to exploit an image of mothers at their worst to sell products. There is so much to celebrate. 
How we treat Mother's Day is indicative of how we teach children about sacrifice. As Cardinal Yosef Mainsenti said, the most important person on earth is a mother. She cannot claim the honor of having built Notre Dame Cathedral. She need not. She has built something more magnificent than any cathedral, a dwelling for an immortal soul. What on God's good earth is more glorious than this? To be a mother. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.